Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Wednesday the 6th of July 2022, News. Glasgow Library Book Finds to be Abolished. This article is by Deborah Anderson. Fines for late book returns are being abolished to ensure Glasgow's libraries continue to be accessible to all. Glasgow Life, the charity responsible for culture and sport in the city, announced it has removed charges for overdue books and cleared outstanding fines for items yet to be returned across all of Glasgow's 33 public libraries, including the Mitchell Library. The Trust said with a growing cost of living crisis, the new approach, which begins this month, is aimed at removing concerns about fines while encouraging more people to use their local library. Glasgow Life said the decision reflects a growing global movement to abolish late book fines, which is recognised as a barrier to participation, particularly for families from low-income households. It also supports Glasgow Life's mission to inspire every citizen and visitor to become engaged and active in a city globally renowned for culture and sport. It is hoped that the removal of fines will aid Glasgow Life Library's aim to be as inclusive and accessible as possible, providing highly valued services in communities across the city. Glasgow's libraries attracted more than 1.2 million visits in the 2021-22 operational year, of which 478,000 were made in person and 747,000 were online. During this period, some 1.2 million books were issued, which included 453,000 e-books, while nearly 460,000 uses of free PCs and Wi-Fi were recorded. More than 1,500 children also took part in the 2021 Summer Reading Challenge. However, the Trust says the importance of Glasgow's libraries extends far beyond the provision of reading resources, delivering vital community learning programmes, digital skills training, health information and help with universal credit claims. Andrew Olney, Glasgow Life's Head of Communities and Libraries, said Glasgow's libraries play a fundamental role at the heart of the city's communities. They're vital safe places, providing free access to books, digital resources, information and support, which can improve health, well-being and social connection. Glasgow Life is committed to reducing inequality and we believe everyone, regardless of their financial circumstances, should be able to enjoy reading 
and all that their local library has to offer. By removing late book fines, we hope this will make Glasgow's libraries more accessible to all. A series of weekly demonstrations were held at libraries across the city as they fought for their local facilities to reopen following lockdown closures. While some reopened, there was fears for five libraries, but following a cash boost, they too were to reopen. The Cooper Institute Library at the Goma, Mary Hill Library and White Inch Library all opened earlier this year. Barmulloch Library also came back into use after it had served as a vaccination centre. The Scottish Government gave the charity an extra grant of £448,068 in addition to the £100 million funding guarantee Glasgow Life received from Glasgow City Council in March 2021. This article is by Deborah Anderson. The Herald Wednesday, the 6th of July, 2022. News. Scottish education, third of pupils arrive at school without having eaten. This article is by John Paul Holden. Primary schools across Scotland are seeing more than one third of pupils turn up for class in the morning without having eaten, a poll of teachers suggest. Seven in ten survey participants said the situation was so bad they had brought food and snacks for children. The figures, which were gathered last month by Prospectus Global on behalf of the Arla Dairy Cooperative, are the latest sign of relentless cost pressures bearing down on families. They are also likely to spark concern for disadvantaged learners in P6 to P7 after a pledge to extend free school meals to all primary school pupils from next month was delayed. Bosses at Arla are now working with the charity Magic Breakfast in a bid to secure improvement. Andrea Doherty, Magic Breakfast School Liaison Manager, said it's truly devastating that the number of children requiring support at breakfast time is only growing, whether that be because of financial pressure or lack of government guidance, we need to join forces and come together to provide these children with the support for their growth and fuel their learning. As part of the survey, 500 UK primary teachers, 50 of them in Scotland, supplied views on a range of issues linked to hunger and diet. They were asked to consider their current class and say what percentage of pupils they think come to school without having eaten breakfast. An average was then calculated based on the answers, with a figure of 36% recorded for respondents north of the border. The Scottish data also showed that 71% had brought food and snacks for learners using their own money, while 90% think pupils start to flag by mid-morning as a result of not eating. 76% warned that children who had not eaten tended to become moody, and 67% said they got upset more easily. When asked for their thoughts on what might be causing the increase in hungry pupils, 
86% blamed the cost of living crisis. 81% said the price of food was so high that families were struggling to put meals on the table. Danny Micklethwaite from Arla said our research shows that plenty of children are going to school hungry and it's devastating that these cases are only growing. We believe that every child should have a good breakfast, which provides them with the essential nutrients they need to grow and fuel their learning, which is why our partnership with Magic Breakfast is so important. The survey adds to rapidly accumulating evidence of a squeeze on family incomes. Analysis revealed previously by the children's charity Aberlour found more than £1 million was owed by Scottish families unable to pay for school meals. It also highlighted reports that some pupils are not eating and instead returning lunch money so parents can cover household bills. Charity bosses stressed the study, which was carried out by Professor Morag Trianar from the Institute of Social Policy, Housing, Equalities Research at Heriot Watt University, had underlined a worrying increase in hidden hunger. A Scottish Government spokesperson said, No child should go hungry at school. We continue to work with local authorities to plan for the expansion of free school meals. All pupils in primary one to five at publicly funded schools now benefit from universal free school lunches during term time, as well as eligible pupils within other age groups, saving families on average £400 per child per year. We have also provided local authorities with £21.75 million to deliver free school meals during the school holidays for eligible families on the basis of low income. In addition, ministers remain committed to increasing the Scottish child payment to £25 a week, as well as extending the benefit to all those under 16 by the end of this year to help tackle child poverty and the rising cost of living. This article is by John Paul Holden. From the Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 6th of July 2022, from the Voices section, Ian McWhorter, the SNP will be rejoicing at Starmer's hard Brexit line. By Ian McWhorter, Make Brexit work sounds like one of those Boris Johnson's test slogans for the next general election. In fact, this is now Labour's headline policy, following Sir Keir Starmer's remarkable conversion to the Brexit cause. He unveiled the new slogan in a speech to the Centre for European Reform. It's an unexpected gift to Nicola Sturgeon, whose latest NDRF plan was getting heavy weather from sceptics in and out of the SNP. Suddenly, she leads the only serious poor European party in Scotland, apart from the Greens and the Lib Dems. Getting 50% of the whole vote in the 2024 general election looks easier now than the, the SNP's in office dis- destination for the 62% of Scots who voted to remain in, in the EU. Sir Keir has also declared war on his own party, many of whom are as pro-European as the SNP. The London Mayor, Sadiq Khan, has already broken ranks and rejected his leader's policy switch. Others in the Labour Party are bewildered. It seems only yesterday that Sir Keir was in arm in arm with Nicola Sturgeon, leading those raucous anti-Brexit marches and demanding a repeat referendum. 
Wasn't Brexit, Brexit all about disaster capitalists coining the white working class with nationalist populism? The better to install a proto-fascist state? Just read the books and tweets of Labour-supporting authors like the former BBC Newsnight Journal, Paul Mason, and the hashtag FBPE philosopher AC Grayling. Too many pro-Labour intellectuals. Brexit is simply Britain's version of the Trump apocalypse. Remainism wasn't just the calling card of the Labour left. Uniquely, opposition to Brexit united left and right in the Labour Party. The King over the Water, Tony Blair, was the inspiration for the pro-European Labour folk like Hilary Benn, the architect of the Benn Act during the great parliamentary struggles in 2018-19. Their passionate followers wouldn't abandon faith and free movement overnight. And what about all those Labour lovies who signed petitions against hard Brexit? Steve Coogan, Hugh Grant, St Bob Geldof, not to mention the National Treasurer, Emma Thompson, who said Brexit was mad and departed for Italy, briefly. Well, yes, that kind of answers the question of why Sir Keir has changed the spots. The outpouring of grief by the Remain elites and their contempt for Brexit voters did not go down well with Labour's many working class supporters, hence the red wall crumbling to the Tories in the 2019 general election. Sir Keir had no alternative but to come to terms with Brexit, since it clearly isn't going away. However, I remain mystified that both the timing and the nature of the Labour leader's conversion to what used to be called hard Brexit. The lesson in politics is supposed to be that when your enemy is making mistakes, don't get in the way. Boris Johnson's grip on those northern working class votes is looking a lot less secure following recent by-elections. Sir Keir could have accepted the reality of Brexit, Indeed, he already has many times, without ruling out any kind of accommodation with the EU single market. Yet, in his speech on Monday night, he made absolutely clear that Labour will have nothing to do with any EU institutions. We will not be joining the single market. We will not be joining the customs union. We will not return to freedom of movement. So here is for pure, clear Brexit. If things were going reasonably well in this capitulation to hard Brexit, it might have made sense. But even Brexiters are now saying that leaving the EU single market has managed the economy beyond immediate repair. It is beyond dispute that the barriers to trade erected by the EU since 2016 have wrecked exports to the UK's largest market. As predicted, the EU has turned its full protectionist guns on Brexit Britain. The Centre for European Reform, the think tank to which Keir Sarkir unveiled his new slogan on Monday, has done a post-pandemic comparison with similar economies that remained in the EU. It showed that the British economy was 5% smaller than it would have been had remained in the EU single market. That makes Britain £31 billion a year poorer. The main problem with Sir Keir's attempt to make Brexit work is that he will not have to confront the unpleasant reality that the EU is determined to make it not work, certainly in Northern Ireland. Sir Keir claims to have a solution to their problems caused by the Northern Ireland Protocol removing the giant fatberg of red tape and bureaucracy, as he puts it, which has led to a border emerging in the Irish Sea. Brussels has imposed that fatberg, not the UK government. It says that endless checks and rules are necessary to protect the European single market. This has meant, famously, that Sainsbury's meat products, like sausages, could not go and sale in part of the UK because the province was remaining, effectively, under Brussels regulations. If Sir Keir has a solution to this, 
then I'm sure the UK government would love to hear it. He seems to think that because he is an honest broker, the constitutional issues can be magicked away. But this is about a lot more than just harmonising veterinary standards. Britain says goods designed for Northern Ireland must be allowed to flow there without checks and impediments. This is unacceptable to Brussels because it risks goods not being for sale in a part of the EU single market, Northern Ireland, which are not subject to the rules of the European Court of Justice. Sarkir is now saying, in terms, that the court cannot continue to have that jurisdiction, whatever the protocol says. Sarkir cannot condone a border appearing within the sovereign UK, nor can he argue, like Sadiq Khan and some other Tory MPs, that Britain should go back into regularity alignment with the EU single market. He is now effectively aligned with Boris Johnson in the Brexit camp. That is an uncomfortable place to be at the best of times. It risks breaking its button the Labour Party and handing Scotland to the SNP. And that opinion piece was by Ian McWhorter. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. From the Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 6th of July 2022, from the opinion section, Letters. Starmer has written a suicide note on behalf of Scottish Labour. And these are letters from the letters page. Sir Keir Starmer has put his cards on the table. Sarwar, devolution wounded by cross-border game of blame, the Herald, July 5th. He has stated that UK Labour would not attempt to undo the madness of Brexit. He has chosen to cozy up to the lost Labour voters in the Red Wall territories, south of the border, showing utter contempt for the 62% of Scots who voted to remain in the EU, including many former Labour voters who have defected to the SNP. In doing so, he has effectively written a suicide note on behalf of Anna Sarwar and the Scottish Labour Party. Surely the time has come for Scottish Labour to abandon its head in the sand stubborn support for the Union and adopt and display a willingness to campaign for the votes of the people of an independent Scotland. Willie McLean, Mulgai. We learn from Anna Sarwar of his vision that the House of Lords should be abolished. This plan to get rid of the undemocratic and unelected House of Lords is the most positive call I've heard from the Scottish Labour Party for some time. But perhaps we should remind ourselves that Labour currently has 168 members sitting in the House of Lords, five of whom were only appointed as recently as December 2020 by the current leader of the UK Labour Party. The question is, is this a mere soundbite from the Scottish Labour leader, or should he be phoning his friend? Catriona C. Clark, Falkirk. Don't submit to blackmail. It is encouraging to see how desperate the British military-industrial complex is becoming at the prospect of an independent Scotland daring to challenge the UK's substitute for an empire, Trident. Ditching Trident could scupper Sturgeon's plans to rejoin the EU, the Herald July 5th and Letters July 5th. The irony is that this is a US-owned and controlled system for which the Americans kindly allowed the British taxpayer to pay. This started in 1958, when Harold Macmillan went to the US to plead with them to supply a nuclear delivery system since the British ones had failed. They agreed in condition that the UK gave them the Holy Loch. Macmillan did try very hard to persuade them to go north instead. He was worried about bullshit Glaswegians, but the Americans insisted on the Holy Loch and got it. The system on offer was cancelled and Macmillan had to go back and plead for a Polaris system. We then had to depend on them to get Trident and now we have to depend on them to get the new generation trident. 
The new suggestion is that the EU will blackmail Scotland if it chooses to become a non-nuclear state. The great majority of EU members do not have nuclear weapons, and Ireland and Austria have ratified the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, to which the SNP, Greens and ALBA are also committed. The suggestion that EU members owe the UK a favour and will reject Scotland is a bit of wishful thinking from sections of the military establishment. Of course, there are big status and big money interests at stake, and Scotland will be pressurised until we are unless we are resolute. But the British state has shown an ability to come to terms with the independent choices of the many states it once controlled. It will come to terms with Scotland's legitimate choices. Isabel Lindsay, bigger. Spoiling for a divorce, Neil Mackay in his role as marriage guidance counsellor, unionist anger at contempt will see this UK marriage fail, the Herald, July the 5th, really needs some counselling. He states, one half of the couple, the one who wants to leave, has a whole load of ideas about what they want to do with their life. They've looked at the past and decided it's not worth saving. They've looked at the present and deemed it a mess. And they've thought about the future. They just want to spend, don't want to spend the rest of their life in a relationship that's dead to them. I suggested this, the, the one who wants to leave, who has well and truly killed the relationship. It has used every possible reason to criticise, blame, attack, condemn the other parties in the relationship for every one of its own shortcomings and failures. And boy does it have shortcomings and failures. In any marriage, each party has to work very hard to make the success of the relationship. But we have ample evidence, despite behind a tremendous start, devolution, that the SNP has totally squandered its chances to make this marriage work. The people of Scotland need to be reminded time and time again that virtually every aspect of Scottish life has been trashed on the altar of independence and if the relationship is dead, it is clear to the majority who killed it. Douglas Cow, Newmacker. Answer the basic questions. One way or another, it looks as though we're heading for another independence referendum, more heated arguments within families and between friends. The electorate deserves some simple, honest facts to help make this important decision. Answers to the following would give us a good idea of what might lie ahead in independent Scotland. What currency will be used? What border controls are planned? What additional public service resource will be required? What proportion of UK national debt is owned by us and how slash when will this be repaid? What are the proposed tax rates for the first year, five years of an independent Scotland? Income tax, or inheritance tax, or capital gains tax, or corporation tax, or VAT? What major new businesses have been brought into Scotland in the past five years? A. Directly from corporations and B. Via the UK government. What major investments are planned for the next five years? What is a financial business plan for the first five years of an independent Scotland? And how does this compare with the past five years? What are the thoughts and plans on re-entering the EU? Who will we turn to in times of economic crisis? These basic questions which should now not be difficult to answer. Les Lawson, air. FM's selective use of facts. At last week's First Minister questions, Nicola Sturgeon used statistics to prove all was well with Police Scotland. Figures now released showed a 50% fall in applications to join the police. There were 5,611 applications in 2020-21, 
and this is fallen to 2,237 in 21-22. Where stands Miss Sturgeon's answers now? This constant lack of information or selective use of facts is a hallmark of a government that has been opaque rather than transparent. It is like the £2 billion plus black hole in Scotland's finances this year and the utter lack of any detail in Miss Sturgeon's independence referendum bid. Political pundits never predict the end of the SNP rule in Scotland, but for how much longer can this be justified? Something has got to give. Dr Gerald Edwards, Glasgow SNP penalised for its success Joe Stevenson, Letters July 5th, makes a valid point about the list voting system. Without the list, there would be no D. Ross in Holyrood. Just imagine if we had first passed the post instead. The Unionist Party has managed just 10 seats against the SP 60, SNP's 62 seats in the constituency vote. The Liberal Democrats held on to four, along with the Conservatives, and Labour held on to two. On the list, the SNP was penalised for its constituency success in order to achieve a parliament that left the adversarial brain to Westminster and practice consensus politics. The parliaments of Norway, Sweden, Denmark are good examples of politicians working together for the good of their countries. Ireland successfully arranged a three-party coalition in 2020. What do these countries have in common? They're all on Nicola Sturgeon's list of comparator countries. Scotland would join them if it were independent. Francis Scott, Edinburgh Early light in Scotland, Michael Sheridan, Letters July the 4th, paints Scotland as a dark land of witch trials until the Enlightenment of the 1707 Union came along. He omits to mention that Scotland had four universities to England's two until 1832. Also, after the Reformation in 1560, schools were set up in every parish to give Scotland the most literate population in Europe, long before the Treaty of Union of 1707. This fact is the real foundation of the Scottish Enlightenment. Mr Sheridan further omits the fact that the 1707 union he supports was built in the transatlantic slave trade. Tom Johnson, Cumbernauld. And that was correspondence from this week's letters page for the Herald Scotland. From the Herald Scotland, Wednesday the 6th of July 2022, from the Voices section, Rosemary Goring, A Stir of Echoes Awoken as Scotland Forges New Paths, by Rosemary Goring. Last week I was strolling by the tweed near Melrose when I saw a woman ahead of me wearing shorts and carrying a backpack fit for an apparent runner. Well into her 70s, she said she was late setting off. After hurting her leg the previous day, she needed to wait for boots to open. From the way she was striding out, you'd never have known she was in less than good shape. Where are you heading? I asked, anticipating Dryborough or possibly Galashios. Cape Wrath, she replied. This was day 45 on a journey that was taking her from Land's End through the tip of mainland Scotland. She was wild camping wherever she found a suitable spot, but treating herself to a night in a B&B or hotel once a week to remind her of the comforts of civilization. We said goodbye and she carried on, with almost 20 miles to go before reaching that day's destination of Trachia. Although fewer is hardly as adventurous as this, you get a lot of walkers in the borders, Soon there will be many more. A new venture, to create a trail along the River Tweed, has recently been awarded a £2.9 million grant from the National Loyalty Heritage Fund to get it started. A collaboration between environmental charity Tweed Forum 
Scottish Borders Council, local landowners and others, this ambitious 113 mile path will follow the route of the Tweed from its source near the Devil's Beef Tub, not far from Moffat, to where it flows into the North Sea at Berwick upon Tweed. It will take five years to create and, as a part of a larger regeneration scheme called Destination Tweed, is expected to boost the economy and link communities on both Scottish and English sides of the river. The Tweed Tail follows similar ventures elsewhere across the country, whose popularity seems assured as the pleasure and benefits of walking are increasingly appreciated. The West Highland Way was was the first and most trumpeted of these routes, but the Southern Dublin Way has its own charms. Speaking from personal experience, nylon sheets in a hostel during a heatwave and midges the size of drones are not among them, but the sense of achievement in completing even a few sections for the route, as I did, and time spent in the emptiness and wildness of the countryside through which the way passes, makes aching limbs and blisters fade to nothing. The proposed river route will wind its way along the border where, in the not-so-distant past, people would have thought nothing of trekking miles on foot each day to school or work or market. As more and more paths are made across the country, echoes of old Scotland can be felt. Plodding the same route as those who came before us connects us to the landscape in a way nothing else can. By the 18th and 19th centuries, the middle and upper classes only walked when they wanted to. It was the highly educated, in general, who sang the praises of this most simple and inexpensive pastime. A lifelong and legendary ambler, Robert Louis Stevenson, reflected, You become enamoured of a life of change and movement in the open air, where the muscles should be more exercised than the affections. For you the rain should allay the dust of the beaten road, the wind dry your clothes upon you as you walked. Stevenson well understood how addictive it could grow. You may seem from afar what will come to, an e- to in the end. A weather-beaten red-nosed vagabond comes soon by a fever of the feet. Sadly, he was not talking about Scotland, but Europe, where countless diarists, novelists and writers recorded long sojourns, wandering Alpine med- meadows or riverbanks, and reaching at day's end a hospitable inn, with, as he describes, their cups of raw wine. Walking in Scotland is another matter entirely, and not for the faint-hearted or pampered. That is part of its appeal. In Tweed Rins to the Ocean, the SNP MSP Alistair Allen's entertaining and informative walk coast-to-coast across the border, he warns that while the old East and West marches are manageable enough, the once infamous Middle March accommodation is exceedingly thin in the ground. Careful planning and an extra mobile phone battery is essential before heading out. This challenging stretch is where reefers and reprobates once held sway, where the Devil's Beef Tub was aptly named, and given a wide berth by those who valued their lives. The root of the Tweed Trail is in the rich historical political significance beyond the old thieving clans. As Alan writes, the part of the border that's been most stable of all seems to have lain exactly where it does now, the middle of the River Tweed, for something like eight and a half centuries. One of the oldest unchanged borders in the world, barring the debatable lands in Berwick, which constantly change hands. Soon, as IndyRef2 approaches, it is likely to become the focus of international attention. With some hoping and others fearing that it will one day mark a fixed border, the Tweed Trail marching alongside it will hold a deeper meaning than merely a beguiling byway through stunning scenery. Not everyone, of course, will be happy at the thought of a structured path, 
where previously there were only informal or invisible routes. When parts of the West Highland Way were upgraded a few years ago, some called it criminal damage. I have sympathy with that, since official looking trails are a scar on the landscape and destroyed the sense of being beat off the beaten track. Yet the benefits of Nation Pass far outweigh their problems. For the towns through which this tweed trail will run, among them Coldstream, Galashiels and Kelso, the boost to tourism and the economy will be hugely welcome. The stream of walkers it will attract will act as a catalyst for inventive entrepreneurs in the hospitality trade, as well as boosting environmental initiatives linked to the waterfront. Equally important is what walking long distances like this offers to those who embark on it. Few activities are more accessible, relaxing or uplifting. And for anyone suffering areolysis fear of the feet, dipping a toe in the icy tweed will kill them in a flash. And that piece was by Rosemary Goring. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 7th of July 2022, from the news section, A9 Slocks Summit, Grandparents and Grandson 2 Dying Crash by Emma Sabiak. A two-year-old boy and his grandparents have been named as victims of a fatal car crash on the A9. Three vehicles collided on the road nearby Slough Summit, near Carbridge, on Tuesday, July the 5th, with the road closing for more than nine hours while emergency services attended. David McPherson, 68, was pronounced dead at the scene after his red Ford Fiesta and a black Mercedes C-Class collided shortly before 12pm. The 68-year-old was pronounced dead at the scene. His wife, Elsa McPherson, 64, and their two-year-old grandson were hospitalised but sadly succumbed to their injuries. The driver and passenger in the black Mercedes were also hospitalised. The condition of the 67-year-old man and 65-year-old woman has been described as stable. A white Mercedes Sprinter pickup vehicle was also involved in the collision, but the male driver did not suffer any injuries. An investigation into the incident is underway, Police Scotland confirmed. Sergeant Neil MacDonald of the Road Policing Unit said, Our thoughts are with the family and friends of the deceased, and the family have requested that their privacy is respected at this time. We are conducting extensive inquiries into the circumstances of this incident, and are appealing for anyone with information to come forward. In particular, I would ask anyone with dashcam devices to check their footage, as it could hold images which could prove significant in our inquiries. Anyone who may have information regarding the vehicles or the incident, to contact Police Scotland via 101, quoting number 1010 of Tuesday, 5th of July 2022. And that piece was by Emma Sabliak. From the Herald, Thursday the 7th of July 2022, from the politics section, SNP threatened sexual harassment victim with disciplinary action by Andrew Learmonth. The SNP staff member, who was the victim of an unwanted sexual advance by MP Patrick Grady, said he's been threatened with disciplinary action by the party. The man, who was 19 at the time of the incident, has been warned that he faces misconduct action after he sent an email to MPs and staff criticising the SNP response to the scandal. He strongly criticised public comments by Westminster leader Ian Blackford about the affair and said he felt staff were still not adequately protected. According to the Scottish Sun, 
SNP Westminster Group Deputy Leader Kirsten Oswald MP wrote to him explaining he could now be a subject of disciplinary action. His UK Parliament work email account was also locked. Mr Grady, the party's former chief whip, told the Commons he was profoundly sorry for touching and stroking the neck, hair and back of the staffer, who was 17 years his junior. Parliament's sleaze watchdog suspended him for two days. However, the party's conduct and handling of the initial complaint has been widely criticised. The row escalated dramatically after the recording of the SNP Westminster Group's meeting after the finding that was leaked to the media. Despite Group Leader Ian Blackford promising a zero-tolerance approach to harassment in 2017, he was heard urging his fellow MPs to give Mr Grady their full support, leading to cries of, Hear, hear! Nicola Sturgeon called the contents of the recording utterly unacceptable and apologised for the victim being un- feeling unsupported. Mr Blackford has since turned on Mr Grady, saying he should reflect on his conduct and position and said his future is now a question for his constituency party. In her letter, warning of misconduct action if the young staffer does not desist, Ms Oswald said she was concerned about his well-being. She also said some colleagues were upset by the staffer's email. Ms Oswald says that while it was fully appreciated that this is a difficult time for you, the staffer must cease and desist from sending such further emails with immediate effect. She added, Should you choose to, choose to continue to do so, despite the terms of this communication, then it is only fair to put you on notice that this could be treated as misconduct and make you subject to further action under a disciplinary process. It is, of course, very much hoped that this that will not be necessary. Ms Oswald also added that she wanted to stress my concern for your well-being and have already suggested a number of ways in which as your employer, we may be able to support you. Then she strongly urged him to take up that offer as soon as possible. Ms Oswald then said that in the meantime, as a protective measure given you're on a long-term sick leave, want to confirm that your access to work email has been temporarily suspended. In his email to colleagues, the man said they had no faith with a meaningful change to the party's handling of complaints. He said that the party's response shows that the victim has been ignored and that staff remain unsafe working for the SNP in Westminster and the SNP Westminster Group will only improve processes in, staff, in place for staff when the media is involved. They added, Staff cannot be safe under this process or under the leadership of Ian Blackford. Something needs to change to avoid this from happening to more victims, otherwise the SNP will find themselves complicit and allowing future victims of abuse. And that article was by Andrew Learmonth. From The Herald, Thursday the 7th of July 2022, from the Opinion section. Alison Rowett, wanted a general election now, please. Call off the search, the culprit has been found. In the best traditions of a Scooby-Doo final scene, the mask of duplicity can be torn off and the real villain of the hour revealed to be... Alistair Campbell. That was the best Nadim Zahawi, the new Chancellor of the Exchequer, could do yesterday as he toured the studios to explain what really ailed Boris Johnson's government. 
It was not that the boss's trousers were permanently on fire, or that his ministers were serially incompetent at worst and plain thick at best. None of the above. It was some pesky 65-year-old kid named Campbell who was making a well-intentioned government look bad. The only thing this government could possibly be guilty of was taking decisions at warp speed that, alas, turned out later to be wrong. Like knowing somebody had behaved in a predatory way in the past, but promoting him anyway. The sigh from the interviewer, today's Nick Robinson, was enough to rattle the windows. No wonder Mr Campbell, Tony Blair's former spin doctor, can be blamed for a lot of things, but not the current Prime Minister. That one is all down to the Conservative and Unionist Party. They wanted an election winner, no questions asked. They got one for a while, but now the arrangement has gone the way of four-day-old fish and the rush to get rid is on. It is not a laughing matter. One way or another, we all pay a price for this grim farce. Government at the UK level is all but paralysed at a time when there are so many people desperate for help and so much that needs to be fixed. Yet the absurdity of the situation cannot be ignored at times. On Tuesday night, for example, as news presenters did their solemn stroke skittish pieces to camera in Downing Street, you could be, see behind them the other resident of number 10, one Larry the Cat. There he was, sitting on a windowsill, attending to his hygiene with not a care in the world. A better metaphor for the Conservatives' relentless self-absorption would be hard to find. There was much preening going on too in the resignation letters of Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid. The Chancellor and the Health Secretary could hardly wait to be done with the usual stuff of such missives. It has been an enormous privilege, etc. Before making their own pitches for the leadership. Mr Javid said Conservatives at their best were seen as hard-headed decision-makers guided by strong values who added competently in the national interest but the public now saw them as none of these things. Joe Public popped up too in Rishi Sunak's letter. The public rightly expect government to be conducted properly, competently and seriously. I believe these standards are worth fighting for. Put that on the home page of your website. At the time of writing, there was no official leadership race, but the idea that either Mr Javid or Mr Sunak should be in with a chance of winning one is ridiculous. What is it about the former Chancellor, a wealthy person and his own right, and the son-in-law of one of the world's richest men, that makes him seem the ideal person to lead a country through the worst cost-of-living crisis in a generation? Nor did Mr Sunak seem to have the stomach or forbearance for a fight when his wife's tax arrangements and his holding of a US green card became public earlier this year. Any heat he felt then would be as nothing compared to what he would face as Prime Minister. How is that swimming pool of yours at your Yorkshire home coming on, Mr Sunak? Did you go for red or blue on the walls of the state-of-the-art gym? As for Mr Javid... Despite the wave of amnesia doing the rounds, the public has not forgotten that he resigned once before from a Johnson cabinet in February 2020. What was the burning principle at stake then, the hill on which this hard-headed decision-maker, guided by strong values, was prepared to die? He had a hissy fit over Dominic Cummings' plan to sack the then-Chancellor's advisers. 
Mr Javid is not short of a bob either, having made his money early on in banking. Though the lack of privilege in his background, dad was a bus driver, Sajid went to state school, takes some of the edge off his current wealth. While both men would make great adverts for the virtues of working hard and making something of oneself, it has been a long time since either went round a supermarket counting the pennies. Some of the other potential contenders to replace Boris Johnson, once his greased trotters have been prized from the lever of power, are hardly top draw. Keir Starmer had a nice line at Prime Minister's questions yesterday, calling those ministers still in Cabinet the charge of the lightweight brigade. That flatters them. Among those spoken of as potential successors is Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, who absolutely thought it a good idea if British citizens volunteered to fight in Ukraine. Jeremy Hunt, decent chap, but makes Theresa May look like Beyoncé. Ben Wallace, Penny Mordaunt. The list of unimpressive candidates goes on. If nothing else, being in Mr Johnson's cabinet should disqualify a person from standing for the leadership. That applies just as much to recent departees. How long does it take to wake up and smell the rot? Should Mr Johnson go, the honourable thing for his successor to do is announce a general election, air the whole place out. Such is the stench from Mr Johnson's time as Prime Minister that merely opening a window wide enough to let in another Conservative leader will not do. The chances of an election happening, however, seem vanishingly small. The likelihood that it will be treated by the electorate, particularly in England, as a by-election writ large, and the Conservatives trounced accordingly, is too great a risk for the party. If only voters could have faith that the next Prime Minister will be a person worthy of the trust placed in them. Someone who is hard-working, honest, fair, compassionate, even possessed of some of that vision thing we hear so much about. It really should not be asking too much to have these qualities as standard. But until the Prime Minister goes, we can only wait and wonder why it is taking so long and wonder about the harm being done to democracy in the meantime. That article was by Alison Rowett. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 6th of July 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Man at Sea by Liam Bell. Book Review by Alistair Mabbott. Man at Sea, Liam Bell. Fly in the Wall, £9.99. Both literally and figuratively, Stuart Mallinson has borne the scars of World War II for 20 years. Badly burned after his hurricane caught fire in a Malta airfield, his face and hands were reconstructed by plastic surgeons in a gruelling series of operations, leaving him with eyes that were one up, one down. Now in 1961, the Stonehaven-born Stuart works in a whisky warehouse near Stirling. All these years he's held a torch for Elizabeth Blanche, the nurse who tended to him as he recovered. Although they've stayed in touch, he's never told Beth of his attractions to her because she suffers from anxiety and he didn't want her to dwell on it. Nor does he want to make advances that she might give in to from some well-intentioned sense of pity. He would also be competing with the widowed nurse's memories of her Maltese husband, Victor, who died at sea shortly after they got married in England in 1941. But now Beth wants him to accompany her to Malta to help her seek out Joe, the stepson she's never met. Stuart's happy to go along with anything that might bring him closer to Beth, but he also has an ulterior motive for going back. He has always believed that his plane caught fire as a result of sabotage. 
He remembers noticing a member of the ground crew he didn't recognise that day and is convinced that the man was responsible for his life-changing injuries. He's long fantasised about making the journey back to Malta, finding him and exacting revenge. Alternate chapters take us back to 1941 and the young Joe, who, having already lost his mother in childbirth, is living with his grandmother and trying to come to terms with his father being away at war. The last word that came from Victor was a telegram announcing that he'd married an English woman and Joe fears that he has left his old life behind and might never return. In the meantime, Joe has to live with the terrible pummeling Malta is taking from the Italian and German air forces. Brackets, the island was later awarded a George Cross in recognition of its ordeal. Close brackets. While poring over the homemade dictionaries he and Victor wrote together and getting to know the family of refugees who have taken up residence in his grandmother's house. What ensues will have repercussions 20 years down the line when Stuart and Beth come to Malta to lay rest to old ghosts, settle old debts and put old wrongs to right. Born in Orkney, raised in Glasgow now teaching at the University of Stirling, Liam Bell's restrained prose and muted moods convey beautifully the melancholia that pervades the story from the offset. Young Joe's feeling of abandonment, the isolation Stuart has experienced as a result of his brush with death and subsequent disfigurement, and the years that have been stoically wasted since. Beth's fragility, her inability to move on until she has made contact with her stepson, and the faint hope that her husband might somehow, after all these years, still be alive. Man at Sea is partly a study of treachery, forgiveness and the thirst for revenge, but its principal concern is the consequences of clinging on to memories while life passes by. And while some are clinging to them too tightly, others are using them as a shield, a mirror or a means of misdirection. A lean direct novel weaving a delicate blend of starkness and sensuality, its downbeat tone has, by the end, resolved into a quiet optimism. By Alistair Mabbitt. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 7th of July 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Single End. Scots Word of the Week. By Dictionaries of the Scots Language. Single End. A single end is described in the Dictionaries of the Scots Language, DSL, as a one-roomed house. For a non-Scots speaker, this must conjure up a strange image. However, it's just the word used to describe any dwelling, whether an actual house or a tenement flat. Not many of us will have lived in such a home, but the term is still in use and it was already well established in November 1897, when the Edinburgh Evening News advertised House, Single End Wanted, Home Street or Tollcross District. Single ends were often unsanitary. The Lanarkshire Upper Ward Examiner of November 1890 reported a Bailey's statement. Fourteen days ago, a man was brought before me charged with keeping lodgers in a single end. I fined him two shillings and sixpence. Nevertheless, large families lived in single ends. Football was the Saturday afternoon respite from work, and to create a football stadium, all you needed was vacant ground. When you lived in a cramped, damp, single end in the Gorbals, it was a relief to get outside and stand in the rain, says Bob. Evening Times, April 2002. Not all memories of these past times were bad. The Daily Record of September 1994 recorded, Pensioner Mary Watson reckons there's nothing to beat a cosy cuppa and a good old-fashioned single end. Trouble is, where do you find a single end in 1994? Two artists painted a lifelike 3D mural at the old folks' home where Mary, 76, and her pals lived, to remind them of their younger days. I hope Mary enjoyed her tea. Scott's Word of the Week is written by Pauline Cairns-Spital. 
visit DSL online at https colon forward slash forward slash dsl.ac.uk by Dictionaries of the Scots Language. The Herald, Friday the 8th of July 2022. News. Glasgow's oldest house to undergo £1 million restoration. This article is by Deborah Anderson. A £1 million restoration and preservation of the oldest house in Glasgow is due to get underway. Work will start on the province lordship building after funding from Glasgow City Council, which will be invested in the much-loved museum as the exterior of the building receives repairs to the roof, chimneys and downpipes, treatment to stop and prevent rising damp, and a new lime harling render which will better preserve the fabric of the building and return it to the authentic 15th century appearance. Glasgow Life, the charitable trust which runs the city's museums, said the interior will benefit from structural improvements and replacement windows and doors. Work is expected to take around one year and following completion of the repairs, Glasgow Life plans to reopen Province Lordship to the public in summer 2023. Scaffolding will be erected around the building from next week. The secure removal of artefacts from inside the museum began this week and these items will be safely stored in Glasgow Museum's Resource Centre until the venue reopens and they can be reinstalled. Bailey Annette Christie, Chair of Glasgow Life and Convener for Culture, Sport and International Relations for Glasgow City Council, said we're delighted to confirm repair and preservation works are set to begin in the Province Lordship Museum, one of Glasgow's most important cultural and historical venues. The restoration is positive and welcome news for citizens and visitors to the city, as upon completion of the works, museum goers can continue to visit this much-loved cultural facility while the city also ensures a sustainable future for Glasgow's invaluable heritage assets. Last month, Glasgow Life confirmed that operational arrangements were being put in place to reopen the adjacent St Mungo Museum of Religious Life and Art, and this upcoming reopening will not be affected by the works to Province Lordship. This article is by Deborah Anderson. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 11th of July 2022, Arts and Entertainments. J.K. Rowling reveals one real-life inspiration for Harry Potter's haunts. By Maureen Sugden, reporter. It's 25 years since the first Harry Potter novel was published, with the boy wizard's adventures bewitching and beguiling generations of readers from that moment on. Now the Edinburgh-based author has revealed the inspiration behind some of the key locations in her series of books, which have sold more than 500 million sales marked back in 2018. Ms Rowling told her 14 million Twitter followers that despite a firmly held but fan belief that Edinburgh's Victoria Street was inspiration for Diagon Alley, the cobblestoned shop-lined wizarding thoroughfare where Harry and his Hogwarts friends stock up on their supplies, from owls to wands, the alley was purely fictional. She said, no real street-inspired Diagon Alley, I'm afraid. It came out of my head. 
I've never seen 99% of the places that claim to be the inspiration, and I'd never seen Victoria Street when I created DA. Brackets. I have since, obviously, as it's in Edinburgh where I live. Close brackets. The mother of three did, however, reveal that aside from real-life places such as King's Cross that feature in the novels, one Wizarding World location does indeed come from real life. I feel bad for the tourist boards saying it, but all brackets Wizarding World close brackets locations in Potter are entirely imaginary, bar one, which is the most boring. It was only when I'd written the first three books that I realised I'd given Four Privet Drive exactly the same layout as the second house I'd lived in as a child. Brackets, which did have a cupboard under the stairs, close brackets. Dull but true, I haven't even been to many of the cities containing the self-proclaimed real Diagon Alleys. And when one of her followers, Shivan Davis, tweeted that a guide in a walking tour of Edinburgh claimed that many of the characters' names Rowling uses comes from a particular graveyard, the author revealed she was well aware of this suggestion, thanks to the efforts of one of her children. She revealed, unbeknownst to me, one of my children was at a loose end one afternoon and went on one of those Potter walking tours with their best mate for a laugh. They came home with a ton of information that was news to me. Think Black Heart, Ms Rowling's latest Cormoran Strike detective novel, written under the name Robert Gilbraith, comes out in August. By Maureen Sugden. From the Herald Scotland. Monday the 11th of July 2022, from the opinion section, Leslie Riddick, Boris Johnson's departure hasn't polaxed independence, by columnist Leslie Riddick. Boris Johnson's departure has polaxed the independence movement. That, at least, is the received wisdom. Obviously, the political demise of a man who sucked oxygen from every room will change the dynamics of Scottish politics. Heavens, the Scottish Tories might get a UK leader they can actually support. But whether that's Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordaunt, Saji Javid, Liz Truss or Ian Other, it's fairly safe to predict there'll be no warm welcome in the Glens. And personality is just a minor factor. Liz Truss's an attempt to channel the Blessed Margaret to make her almost unwatchable to left-leaning Scots of a certain age, whilst Rishi Sunak's smarm, along with his non-dom wife, millionaire status, and lack of working class friends, according to a recently resurfaced video, also put Ken on the back foot. Ben Wallace's straightforward manner might just have commanded some respect, but he's not standing, just as well, because his stock would have plummeted immediately. Why? No Tory leader has fared well in Scotland since Ted Heath's declaration of Perth supporting Scottish devolution was roundly dumped by his successor. Boris is just the most disliked Tory Prime Minister in a long home rule denying list. There was no Cameron bounce in Scotland, no May magic, and as for that nice man John Major, he said that it would become more respectable to be a Conservative publicly in Scotland than for the last 13 years, before losing every single Scottish Tory seat in the 1997 general election. What maddeningly to Scott's personality trait did these MPs share? Or did Scott simply look past personality to policies they didn't support and hadn't voted for, time after time? If so, the fate of the next Tory PM will be the same as the last. He or she will not carry the dead weight of Partygate, but will inherit the same bad policy choices, sparking an EU trade war over axing the NI protocol, and proceeding with a Bill of Rights that makes Rwanda deportations easier, and gerrymanders future general elections with its requirement for vote, voter photo ID. 
she or he will be unlikely to index linked benefits, reinstate the universal credit card, or improve Britain's position as the most unequal country in Europe bar Portugal, and she or he will be a firm advocate of the real recruiting target for independence, according to Professor Sir John Curtis, Brexit. The decline in support for the Union predates Boris becoming Prime Minister, he said. You can trace it back to the spin of 2019. So yes, Boris is absolutely essential, but it is Boris's legacy, and that didn't disappear last week. Political analyst Anthony Salomon supports that view. Once a voter has decided to back independence, they don't usually turn back easily. I wouldn't expect there to be an immediate change, just on the basis of Boris Johnson's leaving. Brexit is one issue that will keep many new recruits on side for independence, and another whopper is bureauing. Every leadership contender, bar Rishi Sunak, is promising tax cuts at a time of simultaneous crises that require strategy, spending and public investment. Some tax cut pledges have already been costed at £40 billion per annum, the same as the existing defence budget. Intelligent Scottish voters are bound to ask, how can a country with the worst predicted economic growth of any major country, bar Russia in 2023, afford to cut taxes? Is that policy wise or just necessary to cultivate a Tory membership so wired and unhinged that it actually wants to see Boris reinstated? Can tax cuts produce enough growth to compensate for shrinking state coffers during a cost-of-living, climate and security crisis? Past voting patterns suggest Scots would prefer increased state investment to accelerate a green transition, improve energy security and create jobs. But none of the Tory leadership contenders will deliver that kind of future and, thanks to Keir Starmer's recent repudiation of the EU, the GDP boost of rejoining the single market it's also impossible within the UK. As Big Dog put it so succinctly, them's the brakes, and Scots know it. Dominic Cummings' prediction of summer carriage by Boris Johnson may be avoided if the Tories run the selection process at warp speed, deny the membership a say, and produce successor within three weeks. But the woeful spectacle of a hanging-on Boris and Westminster at its shabby, reality-denying worst will stay in Scottish minds for some time, not least because the good luck or good timing placed an alternative template for independence in the public domain just days earlier. Without any prospect of a snap election, since the Tories are bound to lose, the route map to another independence referendum is still daunting. That reality, and the likelihood of a second project fear, are the biggest difficulties facing independence, not the loss of Boris Johnson. Certainly, both difficulties do arise from London not playing fair, something increasingly recognised by broadcasters like Channel 4's Christian Guramurthy, who tweeted last week that Tory MPs could change the rules and have a second leadership vote within one month, while Scots had to wait one generation for a second crack of independence. But life's not fair. The next referendum will be fought on a variety of issues, but it will also be a straight choice between EU and UK membership. That demands more action to explain the Scottish Government's strategy to EU member states, more support for the Brussels lobbying plans of Europe for Scotland, and more effort to create general support for Scotland's right to choose. The Constitutional Convention promised by Nicola Sturgeon in 2020 must be established, and that won't be easy. But the first convention survived by boycotts by the Tories 
and ironically the SMP to produce a successful template for devolution. This time around, hard work is needed to persuade sympathetic individuals and labour sporting unions to participate, and that work should be starting now. In short, never mind the tantalising distractions of a vicious Tory leadership battle, the SNP and Yes movement need to fix the roof while the sun shines. David Cameron got that right, at least. And that was an opinion piece by Leslie Riddick. Our columns are a platform for readers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. And that was read to you today by me, Ian. From the Herald Scotland, Sunday the 10th of July 2022, from the sports section, Novak Djokovic in 7th heaven after beating Nick Kyrgios in Wimbledon final. Novak Djokovic maintained his stranglehold on Wimbledon by beating a frustrated Nick Kyrgios to win a 4th consecutive title and 21st Grand Slam crown. The Serbian has now won 7 of the last 11 titles at the All England Club, equaling Pete Sampras' tally and closing to within one of both Roger Federer's men's singles record here and Rafael Nadal's overall mark. It has been a difficult season for Djokovic, but he has once again been able to rely on the loans of centre court to bring the best out of him, and he raised his arms aloft after securing a 4-6, 6-3, 6-4, 7-6 victory. And that piece was unattributed. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 11th of July 2022, from the sports section, Schalke confirmed Matondo missing from pre-season trip amid Rangers transfer talks, by David Irvin. Schalke have confirmed Rabi Matondo is missing the club's pre-season trip to Austria through transfer talks. The Bundesliga side told supporters Matondo is one of three players to miss the trip with flooring flicking Benjo Molinari out through coronavirus. Matondo however missed the trip with the club, confirming the player was involved in transfer talks. Rangers are believed to have agreed a deal in principle with the Welsh international. And now... Matondo is free to continue talks after dropping out of the pre-season trip. Giovanni Van Bronckhorst is still determined to add to his squad after the signings of Tom Lawrence and Antonio Kolak. And the, busy- and the Ibox boss confirmed work is continuing behind the scenes, with Ross Wilson busy talking targets. The Rangers boss explained, Ross is busy. Of course they want to add more players to their squad and he is busy talking with players, talking with agents and clubs. Now we have so many people involved in those talks, I am hopeful that we can add more players in the coming week. We are busy. We have several players we are watching and talking with. When it is 100% we will communicate. And that article is by David Irvin. From the Herald of Scotland, Monday the 11th of July 2022, in sports section. The rise of Queen's Park and Cove Rangers is a breath of fresh air for Scottish football. Monday kick-off. By James Morgan. Jovic exit at Real exposes Perez's hypocrisy. 5,000 million euros has been lost by the clubs. We're on the edge of ruin, adding, We don't want the rich to be richer and the poor poorer. We have to save football. Everything I do is for the good of football, which is in a critical moment. Thus spoke Florentino Perez, the Real Madrid president, in April 2021 as he laid out the reasons why the European Super League's introduction was a necessity required to safeguard the very existence of the game. 
It was poppycock then, and it remains in the case now, of course. Proof of the vacuity of Perez's dubious claim about clubs being on the edge of ruin can be seen already in this summer's transfer window. It was Real who tried desperately to prize Kylian Mbappe from Paris Saint-Germain back in May, offering an astronomical £114,000 per day contract to the French forward to make the move to Santiago Bernabeu. It was Real that subsequently lashed €100 million on Aurelien Tuchimuni a few weeks later to bring the young midfielder to the Spanish capital from Monaco. It is the very same club, too, that has allowed Gareth Bale to depart on a free transfer this summer, having ostracised him from the squad for much of the last three seasons, despite handing him an annual salary of £25 million in 2016. And it is also a senior Perez's club that has just stood back and watched as Luka Jovic, a €60 million signing from Eintracht Frankfurt in 2019, joined Fiorentina on a free transfer with a 50% sale-on clause. Chucking vast quantities of cash at whatever bright young thing catches their eye has been Perez and Real's modus operandi for years. No amount of poverty pleading can disguise the reality that the Spanish giants have been, and continue to be, amongst the most financially viable clubs in Europe. Even during the pandemic, when the club lost £344 million, there was little chance of them going bust. So what was Perez's real motivation for ESL? Plain and simple greed, or, to paraphrase his own words, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. New boys will revitalise the championship. The debate about new money in lower division Scottish football is a heated one, as I have found out previously in shape of criticism for loading upwardly mobile clubs that aren't afraid to upset the old order. The impact of significant investment in clubs down the pyramid has been seen as a changing face of League 2 in recent seasons, but now the natural expression of that investment is bearing fruit even higher up the divisions with the promotions of Kelty Hearts and Edinburgh FC to League One and, particularly so, in the form of Cove Rangers and Queen's Park reaching the Championship. The latter started their Betfred Camp- Cup campaigns in fine fashion on Saturday with a 5-2 win over Stranraer, while Cove began theirs against Albion Rovers tomorrow evening. At Cove, Paul Hartley and Gordon Young deserve much of the credit for their ascent through the divisions, so it will be interesting to see what kind of impact former Ross County Jim McIntyre has and whether, in light of relatively quiet summer in the, in the market, the club is suitably equipped for the challenge. Equally intriguing will be Queen's Park's debut in the Championship where Owen Coyle, another manager who had a rough time at County, is at the helm. Whatever happens in the season ahead, it's a breath of fresh air for Scottish football. Serie A is the place to be again. During the 1980s and 90s, there was little doubt about which European league was the best. Serie A boasted the biggest names in world football and its clubs were regular winners of European competitions. The ban on English clubs in continental competition only served to strengthen the belief that Italy's was the league of choice for the best footballers to really make a name for themselves. Somewhere along the way, between the rise of Sky Money in the Premier League, and the Calcio Poli scandal, Italian football lost its sheen. It became increasingly defensive and struggles to produce players of quality for the national team. Today, Serie A has recovered much of its luster. Last season, it was the most exciting of the big five leagues with the high-scoring thrillers and wide-open title race for much of the campaign. 
which is why it's disheartening to see some of Scotland's best talent heading for a slice of a Dolce Vita. Josh Doyes and Mount transfer to Verona, who were one of the league's most improved teams in the second half of the season, rekindles memories of the great side of Prebian Alcar and Hans-Peter Brigo that won Serie A in 1985, while this column has previously waxed lyrical about the job being done at Bologna, where Lewis Ferguson is expected to arrive soon. It's also exciting that these young players will get the chance to develop in a more competitive league without the need to head to a lower level English Championship side. Red faces at Wimbledon The narrative hasn't quite panned out as the All England club might have hoped at this year's Wimbledon. First, we had Saturday's ladies final in which Elena Rabicana defeated Ons Joubert. You may recall that in May the All England club decided to ban Russian competitors from the tournament, a move which prompted the ATP to strip the Grand Slam event of its ranking points. Wimbledon's decision backfired somewhat when Rybikina, who was born in Moscow to Russian parents, who lives in the Russian capital and who represented Russia before she changed allegiance to Kazakhstan in 2018, came from a set down to beat her Tunisian opponent. But it was nothing compared to the uncomfortable spotlight it shone elsewhere. In yesterday's men's final, Nick Kyrgios played the first slam final of his career in what should have been a fairy tale. Instead, it has been a particularly controversial fortnight for the irascible Australian, one in which he has been fined for spitting a spectator, called evil by an elite opponent because of his behaviour in a match, and accused of domestic abuse by his former girlfriend, Chiara Passari. It's just not cricket, or tennis, as the old codgers in the garages SW19 might say. The Saudi Rebels rumbles on. The LIV Golf Rebels claim to have received a warm welcome at the Genesis Scottish Open and certainly the controversy surrounding their presence in the North Berwick, which required a legal intervention instigated by Ian Poulter, Justin Hargan and Adrian Otayugi, did not hamper the latter pair's tournament too much, even if Poulter seemed to buckle under the strain that negative publicity has brought. Meanwhile, Graham McDowell, who didn't play, gave a glimpse of his mindset to the Irish newspaper earlier this week, but in the main, it was just more of the same repurposed guff having to look after his future. Far more fascinating were the words from Mike Lorenzo, Vera, the French golfer who lifted the lid on what some of the average Joes think about having to share the stage with the Rebels. Someone needs to feed their family, after 25 years on tour, earning £40 million and building one of the biggest car collections around, he said. You need to feed your family, sell one Ferrari. They're showing huge disrespect to people saying this, said Lorenzo Valle of Putter. Meanwhile, footage of Pat Perez celebrating the tune of the Queen's We Are The Champions in the lounge of a luxury Saudi superjet last week really emphasised the idea that you could have handpicked which of those tasteless guys would have joined the Rebel Tour party pretty easily in a hypothetical barroom chat six months ago. 94. The percentage decrease in the Rangers fans' tokens since they reached its all-time high in August last year, according to a recent report published by Bankless Times, a financial website, into the decline of prices of crypto assets. And that was the Monday kickoff by James Morgan. From the Herald, Tuesday the 12th of July 2022, from the comments section. In the shadow of Trump, cool links golf course controversy. 
by Vicky Allen. Two years ago, after the Scottish Government turned down an application covering about 800 acres of cool links because of the damage it would have caused to protected sites for nature, a plan is back on the table. In Sutherland, a recent fight has been on for the hearts and minds of people. This battle over what seems like just a smallish site of special scientific interest, SSSI, in an isolated part of the country is symbolic and fierce. At the heart of it is the increasingly familiar standoff between local jobs and economy and rewilding or nature protection, or at least that's how the story goes. Among the questions it prompts is, which is more important? The economic prosperity which could be generated by a new golf course in the area, or the need to protect the site of scientific interest on which it would be developed? And if this polarised view in itself is merited? The Communities for Cool group behind the new golf course plan have delivered an emotive campaign. They talk in their literature of jobs and prosperity and of young people being the most endangered species. They declare a need for re-peopling, not rewilding. The group's message, there in their name, is that they represent the community. This gives the story a different feel from the one that drew headlines two years ago about Chicago businessman Todd Warnock coming over with a plan for the site with Mike Kaiser, a golf developer sometimes described as Trump's rival. But is it really all that different? C4C claims the new plan will be environmentally sensitive and describes Mike Kaiser as an environmentalist. But how sensitive? And how much of an environmentalist is Kaiser? Dr Tom Dargy, a coastal and wetlands expert and key voice from Not Cool, a group who campaigned against the previous application, doesn't see much improvement in the current proposal, though the full planning application is yet to be seen. In fact, he regards it as possibly worse. The 2017 first application was sold to local support and to Highland councillors as a profoundly positive environmental opportunity, he says. The 2019 Cool Inquiry concluded it was anything but. It was likely to be very damaging, significantly adverse, for key habitats, breeding birds, wintering birds, lichens and invertebrates. The forthcoming application, he notes, similarly claims positive environmental benefits. Not Cool has checked out some available information and it is convinced that proposals will be even more damaging than in 2017. This is particularly so for proposals to remove, quotes, invasive species, which in fact underpin much cool ecosystem biodiversity, Burnet Rose and Meadowsweet. These are native species, not invasives, and they are vital for the invertebrates, the oil in the cool ecological engine. Aspects of the new proposal do sound better. The idea, for example, of mowing rather than stripping off turf and re-sowing. But mowing is clearly not a no-impact process, certainly not compared with leaving the whole system alone. Dargy observes, mowing will not create a good dune heath, it will destroy it. Beneath the heather is moss, which contains an orchid that has its roots within the moss layer, so we would lose that orchid if they remove the moss. Such observations prompt the question, what damage has golf already done to Scotland's coastal environments? 
The degree to which the sport has impacted Scotland's dunes and links since the first constructed course in 1764 has not been analysed, but as Dargie points out, if you take Google Earth and you go up the east coast of England and especially Scotland, you go from one golf course to another on many of the sand dune resources. Cool is virtually the last good deep sand system which is so far untouched by golf. That's one of the reasons I think we should fight so hard to keep it. The Cool Link's development has been haunted by the saga of Trump's development of many and the ill-feeling generated. Many is a story that is important for Cool because it raises the idea of potential denotification of the site as SSSI. We will stabilise the dunes, said Trump in 2008. They will be there forever. This will be environmentally better after it, the course, is built than it is before. But in 2019, Nature Scott proposed a partial denotification of the site as SSSI, saying the dunes did not include enough of the special natural features for which they were designated. I was reminded of that community fight over many by a recent crowdfinder issued by Alicia Bruce, a photographer who documented the battle in photos and was looking to raise money for the publication of a book. Because of the dominating personality of Trump, the saga seems different, but there are clearly similarities. Many will be asked, could the same happen at Cool? When it comes to development, the question frequently asked is whether the economic benefits outweigh the harmful impacts. The rising awareness of biodiversity decline and crisis has shifted the balance in that judgment. In a Scotland which acknowledges having one of the lowest biodiversity intactness indexes in the world, even tiny losses start to matter immeasurably. Given this, the economic case for cool links has to be particularly robust, is it? C4C has certainly waged a campaign around this issue, predicting around 180 jobs for the area and promising to sign commitments with all major investors to prioritise local people for employment. However, Tom Dargie points out, we simply do not have people who want those jobs. There are more than 50 vacancies in hospitality, retail and care in just Dornoch and Embo at the moment. The planning application and its environmental sensitivity will, I hope, be thoroughly appraised by experts. The questions around cool are big ones, which raise the issues of how we in Scotland will protect our biodiversity and ecosystems going on into the future and how arguments around defending nature will play out in the event of an IndyRef 2. Naturally, we all want jobs for our young, but we want a natural world that thrives and sustains them and generations to come too. That article was by From the Herald, Tuesday the 12th of July 2022, from the news section. Labour to push for vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson, by Andrew Learmonth. Labour will push for a confidence vote in Boris Johnson in the Commons today in a bid to force the beleaguered Prime Minister out of Downing Street. If successful, the motion could force a general election. Even if not successful, it will force Tory backbenchers and the candidates vying to become the new leader to publicly back or oppose Mr Johnson. 
James Murray, Labour's Shadow Financial Secretary to the Treasurer, said it was the last opportunity to get Boris Johnson out of Downing Street before the end of Parliament next week. He told Sky News, Boris Johnson should go now, and we hope that the Conservative MPs agree with us on that. I think the whole country realises Boris Johnson just has no integrity and honesty. I think it's time for him to go. The Prime Minister's reluctance to leave Number 10 until the Tory party has selected a new leader has been much criticised by both opposition politicians and many within his own party. His predecessor, Sir John Major, said it was unwise and maybe unsuitable. In his letter, the former party leader said, The proposal for the Prime Minister to remain in office for up to three months, having lost the support of his cabinet, his government and his parliamentary party, is unwise and maybe unsustainable. In such a circumstance, the Prime Minister maintains the power of patronage and, of even greater concern, the power to make decisions which will affect the lives of those within all four nations of the United Kingdom and further afield. Former Scottish Tory leader Ruth Davidson described it as arrant nonsense. On Monday night, the new executive of the 1922 Committee of Tory backbenchers agreed the timetable for the party's leadership contest, with the winner being announced on September the 5th. Nominations for the election will open and close today, with candidates requiring the support of 20 MPs to make it onto the ballot. Currently, 11 MPs have put themselves forward for the top job. To make it past the first round, they will need to secure the backing of at least 30 colleagues in the Commons. That article was by Andrew Learmonth. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.